We're glad you're here, especially if today's your first day. We do this every week. Ruth provides the food, we provide the teaching, and you provide the lovely faces. So, um, and as you leave, we'll have seconds, so, or we'll have leftovers, so feel free to grab something. We're going to get back into Deuteronomy because we looked at last week what has commonly been called the Ten Commandments and what in Scripture are actually called the Ten Words. And we got through the first half of them. We talked about how this is the beginning of the covenant. This is the, the um, Bill of Rights, so to speak, of Israel. And everything that's going to come after the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy is just like everything that came after it in Exodus when it was given to this generation's parents in the previous 40 years ago. So Moses is recapping, giving this second generation an authoritative uh, understanding of where they've been and why they, what they're about to do and this covenant that, they, that their parents entered into that they are continuing to live under and affirming for themselves. So they're coming of age now and taking upon themselves this covenant. They were, they, were, they were babies. Some of them weren't even born when the covenant was made. And Moses <coughs> flat out says at the beginning, you know, this is, God made this covenant with you, not with your forefathers, but with you. So in other words, they are now getting a chance to confirm the covenant that was made when they weren't even old enough to know what was going on yet. Some of you go to churches where they actually do infant baptism and they do a thing called confirmation. And it's very similar in their theological view and understanding. It's very similar to this. It's the New Testament parallel. So you enter into the people of faith as a baby when you're baptized, just like people in Israel entered into the covenant as babies when they're circumcised, back when the covenant was given. But now, when you become an adult, when you become able, when you are about to enter into the fullness of the covenant, then you have to actually confirm it for yourself. That's how some Christians and traditions believe operates even under the New Covenant. And there's debate. Other Christians say, no, it's not a good parallel, and the New Testament never makes that explicit. Regardless, though, that's at least the understanding. So when you talk to your friends, and they're Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, you know, Catholic, Episcopalian, and they baptize babies, you can go, oh, well, they're not just doing it because they're making stuff up. I mean, they actually have a reason for doing it, whether you agree or not, whether you come from a Baptist or uh, some other background that doesn't do that at least you can understand the symbolism of what's going on. Because that's what's going on for Israel. They were, this generation had to confirm the covenant that they had entered into when they were children. And Moses is retelling them the covenant. He's recounting it. We've talked about for the past beginning, since the beginning of the year, how this is an ancient Near East Hittite suzerainty treaty covenant structure. The whole book is structured around this pattern that dates very specifically to around the middle of the second millennium BC, which lo and behold is the time that actually Moses claims to be uh, taking place in. And so it fits everything we know about that world, including the structure of Deuteronomy itself. And it's telling the people, God, Yahweh, He is your covenant king. Not Pharaoh, not the Canaanite city-states, not the king of Bashan, not the, the king of the Amorites, none of that, none of them. He, God is your king. And so they, entering into this covenant then, they are given a, a, a condensed form. Here's everything you have to do. And it's laid out in these ten words. 
And, and the people were given this covenant. They were given it in, 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 in a carbon copy as well. They were, you remember, we talked about last time. It's not two tablets with five commandments on one and five on the other. That's Hollywood. That's tradition. That's medieval paintings, whatever. No, it was two copies of the covenant, front and back. And that was symbolic of God saying, instead of taking my copy back to where I live in my faraway land, and you taking your copy and putting it in the temple of your God where you live, no, we're taking both copies and we're putting them in the ark because the ark is where I will live among you. So even the fact that there were two tablets is making a significant statement about God's presence and His desire to live among His people. So the first five of the words, or the first four of the words that we looked at last week, were the ones that, that for lack of a better term, had to do vertically. They had to do with the people's relationship to God. And that's not entirely true because all of the commandments have to do with people's relationship with God because how we treat one another is a direct reflection of how we treat God. So you can't just say, well, the first four about relating to God and the second four or six are about relating to people. It's a little too simplistic, but it does at least get at the, how you can understand the commandments in terms of their priorities. The first commandments begin with regulation of worship and how they're going to relate to God in their overt sense. And then it moves into how that worship of God then will affect how they live. And it started last week, the, we looked at the, the observing of the Sabbath, the fourth command, and basically the Sabbath was like, yeah, not only are you going to rest one day a week, the people that work for you are going to rest one day a week, and the immigrants and the aliens and the sojourners, they're all going to rest one day a week. Oh, and guess what? Your animals are going to rest one day a week. So God is ingraining in Israel that you as a society are going to observe my Sabbath. And you're going to cease from doing the work that you think you have to do every day just to scrape by. You're going to trust that I'm going to give you enough in six days to take care of you on that seventh. And by doing that, that is one of the ways that the nations will look to you, Israel, and they will see me and they will be drawn to me. And that's how the promise going all the way back to Genesis 15, that through the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is all part of the plan. It's unfolding. Israel is going to be the national, theocratic, state, physical uh, embodiment of God in His relationship with His covenant people on the earth so that the other nations and states will look towards them and be drawn towards that God. That's the plan. So then he goes on in verse 16 and it says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Everybody who's ever learned the Ten Commandments as a kid learned this as obey your parents. They've learned this as listen to your parents. But it doesn't say obey your parents and it doesn't say listen to your parents. This is important to keep in mind. There's a few things, the ways that this gets twisted. One, this is a commandment to adults. This is not a commandment to kids. This is a commandment to adults. And it's a commandment to honor, to make, to show respect. The word honor comes from the word heaviness or, 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 or weight or glory or just this concept of like, hold your parents in esteem. Give them the honor that's due to them. Why? They brought your little screaming, naked, peeing butt into this world and they served you for years when you couldn't do anything on your own. And now, when you're old enough to do stuff on your own, 
you're going to return the favor one day. You may have to change their diapers one day. You will take care of your parents. Not, let me build a home where we can put our parents and ignore them and forget about them. No. You will care. Now, sometimes their medical needs, they need around-the-clock care, all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with any kind of like assisted living. Or, but there is wrong with dumping your parents off in their old age. No, you're intimately involved. They were there at the beginning for you. You are there at their end. And your kids will be there at your end. And their kids will be there at their end. That is how you will live long in the land. You. Y'all. Generation taking care of generation. This is not a command, kids, clean your room. No. Although that's a good thing. And there is passages about doing what your parents say and discipline and raising children, all of that. But not this one. This is about honoring the people who brought you forth, who gave you life, and honoring them because they are, that is a direct reflection of God. Adam was the firstborn of God, in, or made in God's image in the Old Testament. And then it says, and Adam and Eve had another son named Seth in his image. So the image of God goes back through your parents, through their parents, through their parents, all the way back to the first parents, all the way back to God. So if you do not honor your parents, your adult parents, adults, you are not honoring God. It's just plain and simple. Cannot throw away our, our people in our society just because of they're old or we don't want to deal with them or we don't like them or they're crabby or they're grumpy or they only want to eat at 4 p.m. and watch Matlock and go to bed and all these other things that we as a society don't value. No, no, no. You honor. You honor them. That mean you obey them. They may tell you to do things that are wrong and you don't do those things. They may tell you to do things that are ungodly. You don't do those things. Jesus did say, I've come to bring division. Not peace, but a sword. Mother will be against daughter. Father will be against son. I mean, He did bring, He did come to split families, but only on the basis of how they respond to Him. So families will experience disunity between the generations if one generation is following the Lord and one generation is not. But this commandment is what it's telling Israel as a whole. Honor, hold in esteem your mother and your father. And that's a commandment that we today, the spirit of that is still in effect. We don't, we don't keep the literal Ten Commandments because they're the Ten Commandments anymore because we don't live under the covenant that they are part of. But what we do keep are the ethical requirements and the moral principles of all of these commandments in our settings today under the new covenant and honor your father and your mother still applies no it doesn't carry with it a promise that we will live long in any land in particular because god's people his covenant has 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 spilled over into the whole world not just the land which is what this was talking about but the covenant principle is still the same we honor our father and our mother then goes on to the what we call the sixth commandment the sixth word and it's just two words in Hebrew. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. This is, a, this is an apodictic command, which means there's not if you do such and such, then this is what happens. Those are casuistic commands and laws. You know, if you see someone doing this, then you do. No, this is just apodictic. This is just straight up. Do not do this. Do not do this. What? Murder. It's not kill. It does not say do not kill. There are about eight different words in Hebrew for kill. 
This is not the general word for taking any life. So some people use that when they want to oppose whatever, from war to capital punishment to anything like that. Those are issues that Christians are divided on, and you can make good arguments on both sides for all of those issues. But this is do not murder. Do not commit the unjustified or unwarranted taking of life. So this does not in and of itself prohibit battle, like going into battle, because Israel is going to go into battle. God's actually going to command them to take life. It doesn't, it doesn't have to do with death penalty, because God will actually command Israel rulers to take life of those who are guilty of certain offenses later. So it's not contradictory in that. This is specifically, do not murder. Do not take life that God has not authorized you to take. And that extends in many, many, many different ways. And Christian ethicists will debate that in terms of when it does apply, when it doesn't apply. Everything from death penalty to abortion to wars to casualties of wars and just war theory and all this kind of stuff. Self-defense, somebody breaking into your home. You know, all, there, there are way you, can, you can work through the issues and you have to use the rest of Scripture. But the foundation for Israel, what is ruled out is an individual taking another individual's life for, for, for a reason other than that individual is the blood groom or the blood family blood avenger that we read about in numbers last year. That's the one time where an individual is given, at least in this covenant, the right to take another life. But aside from that, there's no unauthorized taking of life because that's a direct attack on the image of God. It's the first sin. Actually, the second sin. <laughs> it was the first interpersonal, intra, interpersonal sin. It was the taking of life. And so then, after that, another very simple one. Do not commit adultery. Do not. Any sex where one of the two people is married is adultery in the Old Testament. In God's law. And he's saying, do not do that. That is an attack on the very thing that God instituted in the beginning, which was the husband-wife relationship, the man-woman relationship. That's the first thing that was attacked back in the garden. And that's the thing that's been attacked ever since. Our divorce statistics, even in the church, spell that out. And so what God is saying is this is something that will not be infringed upon. Do not commit adultery. And then do not steal. These are simple. They, they are very simple in concept, but in practice, they become tricky. Why? Because we're really good at rationalizing things. Stealing is taking something that you do not have the right to take. <laughs> it has not been granted to you. It is not yours. Don't take it. It also assumes that there's such a thing as property. That, that yes, people will own stuff, people will have stuff, and other people will want that stuff. And you do not have the right to take it from them. Now again, how this plays out, what this applies to, what is stealing, what's not, those are all the things that ethics, ethicists have to wrestle with and unpack given the rest of Scripture. And Jesus has a lot to say about heart motives involved in things, but at least in the covenant, in the Old Testament sense, God is making it very plain and then the fourth one that is also very plain, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is what some have translated as said in the past as do not lie. It doesn't say that. A lady named Rahab's going to lie later and she's going to be praised for it. 
What it says is, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is a court. This is talking about when you're in court, when, when, when you're speaking and a person's life or reputation is on the line. Do not lie. There were not polygraph tests. There were not DNA sampling tests. There was not video surveillance. Courts, witnesses were essential for making sure justice was done. In fact, we saw in Exodus, you couldn't even be put to death, even if you were found guilty by a court, you couldn't receive the death penalty if there weren't at least two eyewitnesses who actually saw the thing, who were willing to put their lives on the line for the testimony. That's how important it was for God to safeguard justice. The thing that the prophets denounce as much as any other sin you want to list, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's idolatry, any of those things the prophets denounce just as strongly and as fiercely perversion of justice and lying witnesses. So somewhere along the way, Christians kind of split off and it's usually based on our political leanings and, and you got Christians that started leaning towards the most important thing is social holiness. So we, we you know, get rid of all of the sex in our culture that's ungodly and, and, and focus on you know, whatever, preserving marriage or uh, you know, R-rated movies, whatever the goal is, pornography, whatever. That's a good thing. Like, the, yes, opposing, that, opposing all of that is good. That's not wrong. That is holiness. But they kind of tend to lose along the way the stuff that Christians on the other side think is the core of the gospel, which is social justice, which is treating people that are from the downward classes like have dignity, preserving the rights of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the you know, racial justice and all of these things. Those are important too. And the other side kind of ignores that, and this side kind of ignores their concerns, and so you end up with this culture that we're in where Christians are bitterly divided over these issues, not based on what Scripture teaches, but based on what their favorite political party says they need to be championing, or their favorite cable news channel tells them they need to be upset about. And instead, I think a lot of times Jesus would do today what He did with God and God's people and the prophets would do back then. He'd come in and just turn the tables over. It's all garbage. <laughs> not, maybe not that bad. But no, we would say, no, you're all right in the things that you're passionate about, but you're wrong in saying that those other things that the other side's passionate about are wrong. And in reality, what God's Word does is it holds that balance that we lose so often. So it says, yes, do not commit adultery. Sexual holiness, preserving the marriage, that is a godly thing. And people that downplay that, downplay that, in a way that God is not pleased about. But right there also, do not have a lying witness. The, 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 the perversion of justice, the concept that courts can be bought, that, that rich people don't do as crime time that poor people do when it comes to crime. Those things, what we would call social justice or, or, or legal reform or any of those things, they're in the Ten Commandments too. So both things are legitimate and they're worth us God's people holding up as values. Now how that works out, what particular reforms should be made, what bills should be passed, all that kind of stuff, of course, that's where Christians are free to differ and have spirited debate with each other on what is the best way to achieve the goals. But the goals we should all agree on. The goals we should agree on. And, and that's what the Ten Commandments are giving Israel. It's like, these are the goals. This is the kind of society that I want to create on this in this world of the second millennium ancient Near East. 
because it's unlike any other culture. All the other cultures that had laws, the laws of Hammurabi, the Middle Assyrian laws, all of those laws did not even come close to what the ten words and then how they outflow into the rest of society uh, encapsulate. God is bringing Israel up. He's pulling them out of their setting, but He's He's doing it by entering into their setting and giving them a trajectory, giving them a social, legal, national trajectory that's going to point everyone towards the higher ethic. And then that higher ethic will even be further revealed when Jesus comes and gives His version of the the covenant, which is the Sermon on the Mount and His life and teachings and then ultimately His, this is my blood of the new covenant, death, resurrection. This is the precursor. This is God getting His people ready. So then He goes on the last commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his maidservant or manservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. It's the word for desire. It's a word that means to just crave, desire, want. Now, it's not saying you shall not desire a wife or a donkey (laughs) or a house. No, those are things that you can legitimately desire and want, but not your neighbors. That's what coveting, the difference between coveting and just wanting, desiring, is whether it's legitimate or not. And it's not legitimate if you want it at the expense of somebody else or you want what they have. Not you want a similar thing for you, but you want what they have. And that's covenant. And here's the thing, that cannot be legislated. There's no penalty for this because no one can judge that except God. He's the only one who can know whether something's a desire or coveting. And just like the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Only God can know if you have in your heart any other gods before Him. So there's this bookend with the commandments. The first one and the last one are unenforceable in a human court. Which implies that God is the one who's judging all of these. It's bookended by commands that only God can judge, meaning He's going to judge them all. It's giving Israel the trajectory of their society. It's not setting out case law. The rest of Torah, the rest of the covenant will set out the case law. This is what those case laws are founded upon. This is what they come from. So then, with the last few minutes, let's look at when Moses is going to tell the people now, this new generation, he's just repeated, but slightly different. They're worded a little bit different than they were to a previous generation in Exodus. But he goes on, he says, these are the words, and NIV says commandments, these are the words the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, the deep darkness. He added nothing more. Then he, then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. This happened in Exodus 20. When you heard the voice of, out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty. We have heard His voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if he speaks with God as Moses. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of our Lord, our God, any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? 
Go near. Listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God says. We'll listen to you. So again, Exodus 20 and Exodus 24 is recapping those events. The people were overwhelmed. Moses didn't make up the Ten Commandments. This is where theory of philosophy of religion, school of religions, they, they just ignore what the actual text is saying and posit this developmental evolutionary stage whereby religions gradually went from polytheism or animism to polytheism to henotheism to monotheism. No, 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 no. You have to ignore the text to get that. What the text is saying is that God Himself spoke these ten words. That's why they're called the ten words. All of Israel heard it. Out of this blazing, fiery mountain that Moses was walking up into and then coming back and telling and then walking up into and then they hear this loudness. It freaked them out. It's like a Roland Emmerich movie, like the end of the world. I mean, just like everything you can imagine, the CGI needed for this would be amazing. This is, this is just terrifying. This is also why when people talk about, well, I was walking down the street the other day and the Lord told me I need to... I'm like, well, okay. I'm not saying the Spirit can't lead and prompt, but when God speaks, it's scary a lot of times. Even in the New Testament, there's a genuine fear. You know, people see angels, they're usually either told, get up or don't fear, or both. Change your pants, it probably comes right after that. <laughs> but it's a scary thing. This is, hearing the voice of God is a serious thing. And, and so the people are like, no, you go listen. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said, I've heard what this people said to you. What they said is good. Or everything they said is good. In other words, yeah, they're right to fear me. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. But go tell them, return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you're to teach them to follow in the land I'm giving them to possess. So, be careful. He's now back talking to the generation that's listening. He's recapped what happened with their parents. Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you will possess. The land that we're camped out looking over the river at. The land that I will not get to enter because I'm going to die over here along with your parents. You're going to go into that land. Joshua and Caleb are going to take you into that land. When you get in that land, this is how you're going to live. It's the same God. So he is instilling in them the sense of fear, of awe, of, of being overcome with God's majesty because he's a good preacher. And good preachers do that. This is a pulpit-pounding moment. He's talking to people who need the pulpit pounded because they need to know this is what's ahead of you. And this is the God who's brought us out. And you, some of you were babies. Some of you weren't even born when he did all this stuff. But it was overwhelming, and yet your parents still chose to rebel. And they and I are going to die in this desert because of that. So it's very solemn. Deuteronomy is, yes, it's an ancient Near East Covenant treaty in its structure. And yes, we're in what would be called the stipulations right now, that section. But it's also a sermon, or a series of sermons. Three series of sermons that Moses gives. And he's speaking, he's, he's pleading, he's being impassioned in his, in his rhetoric to these people so that they will not do what their parents did. So now, next week, we're going to get, gonna, he's going to start right, okay, you've got the ten words, this is what God gave us, this is where we're going now. 
here's what it's going to look like in your life. Here's what it's going to look like from the heart. Because the heart is not just a New Testament thing. God's saying, no, from the very beginning, I want a people whose hearts are mine. And that's what he's going to unpack in the coming chapter. So for the next chapter 6 to around chapter 20 or so, this is a, now he's re-giving what, a lot of what he gave in Exodus and some in Leviticus and some in Numbers. He's going to re-give it to this generation just so everybody's on the same page before they do their covenant renewal ceremony. So that's where we're headed, but we got to go because we're one minute over. If you want some food, grab it, seconds. Uh, if you want to leave a tip, please tip. This all goes to the ladies in the back that serve us every week. And uh, have a great week. See you next time.